This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking with someone who began her music career as a Christian artist, but who's more recently become a crossover sensation. Lauren Daigle grew up in Lafayette, Louisiana, where she enjoyed fishing with her dad, dancing to Cajun music with her grandparents, and rooting for LSU with her entire family, even the ones who went to Louisiana Tech. And while the rich musical traditions of Cajun country influenced her, it was really the two years she spent sick and homebound as a teenager that led her to pursue her dream career. With a new self-titled album coming out and a growing legion of fans, Daigle is now sharing her soulfully raspy voice and her deeply held faith with the world. We'll discuss all of that and her dad's shrimp and gouda grits on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Lauren Daigle, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, Lauren, I've heard you say on your podcast that you hail from the deep swamps of Louisiana. So tell me what you mean when you say that. Well, I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana, and we grew up going to the Atchafalaya Basin to go tubing and skiing and wakeboarding. And typically, you know, people go to a nice lake or whatever, and we would fall off the tubes and immediately stick our feet up just so that no alligators got our toes. So, yeah, that's what I mean by the the deep swamps. <laughs> so did you grow up like hunting, fishing, frogging, you know, all that Louisiana sort of thing? All of the above. Well, actually, I take that back. I still haven't gone frogging, but we grew up crabbing, shrimping, <laughs> and definitely hunting and fishing. The irony, though, is I, this is going to be probably something worth laughing at. My entire family is avid hunters. When I mean avid hunters, like, mom, where's dad? Lauren, you won't be seeing him for the entire month of November. Don't ask. He's hunting. <laughs> like, <laughs> very, very involved in the Louisiana sportsman's paradise culture. And I grew up around it all the time. But I clearly was a terrible shot because when I was a little girl, I tried to go hunting with my dad and do all the things, but I could never kill a deer. And now I think it was God's way of being kind to me because I think if I would have killed one, I would have been so sad. But I think they're such beautiful animals. And yeah, we grew up surrounded by that, though. But I do love deep sea fishing. That's one of my all-time favorite things. So is that something that you would have done with your dad? Yes, Absolutely. The first time I ever went deep sea fishing was outside of Pensacola, Florida. Some of the best fishing is right there in Venice off the coast of Louisiana. Oh, sure. Redfish mm-hmm. and yes. all that. Lots yeah. of redfish. Do you like to fish? I do. I do. Yeah. And especially like in Louisiana, hunt? whenever I get the chance. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. You know what's really special about hunting and fishing is it makes you slow down. You have to be slow. You have to be patient. You have to wait. You get to observe. You get to be still. You get to hear the leaves rustling. You get to hear the crickets chirping. The silence of the woods, the silence of being out in the middle of the water is just so beautiful. And I think in the busyness of life and in the the chaos that life can bring, those are the places that I go to get recentered and refocused. It's just in that 
the abyss of nature in the best way is the spot where I can find ultimate peace. Yeah, and you get to spend time with family too. And sometimes, you know, in ways that are really special and that you don't get to do, you don't have that same kind of connection that you might just, you know, sitting around the house. Yeah, a thousand percent. Some of my greatest memories hunting with my dad, it was just the two of us. You know, I was always a mama's girl. We were cut from the same cloth. But it was really special when I was a little girl going on these trips with my dad and getting that one-on-one quality time. There was nothing like it. And now, even as an adult, those are the moments that I so deeply look forward to. My sister, though, she was a great hunter. She had a good shot. And she would go hunting with my dad her entire upbringing. There was a phase where I kind of, you know, phased out of it, if you will. I was like, I'll try this again later in life. But they would go out to West Texas. And that was like a nine-hour drive. And I was like, I'm not going to go to West Texas for nine hours to just sit in the middle of the woods when I can sit in the middle of the woods in Louisiana. (laughs) But my sister was like, I'm all about it. Let's go. So, yeah. But it is. It's true. It's really quality family time. So, Lauren, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Lafayette. I love Lafayette. And it has some of the best food anywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the crawfish and the shrimp and the etouffee and the gumbo, the oysters, all of it. But what are some of your favorite dishes when it comes to Cajun food? Oh, my goodness. Shrimp and grits. My dad's shrimp and gouda grits are like bar none. He will drive an hour outside of the way, 30 minutes outside of the way to the shrimp boats, get the shrimp from the, the uh, right off the coast, you know, and then... He makes these smoked Gouda grits that are just absolutely decadent. So I would say his specific shrimp and Gouda grits. Um, there's another shrimp and grits that that if I wasn't having them at home, I would go to this place. And it's in New Orleans. It's called Cafe Amelie. And they actually put a corn mock shoe on top of the shrimp and grits, which is I've never had that anywhere else but Cafe Amelie. And they're super savory, super uh rich in flavor with the cayenne. But if you know Lafayette food and your podcast is called Biscuits and Jam, have you ever had Edie's Biscuits? No. Okay, next time you're in Lafayette, Louisiana, go to Edie's, spelled E-D-I-E apostrophe S. And their biscuits are so good. You'll be waiting in the line to get them in (laughs) the morning. That's okay. For good biscuits, it's worth it. (laughs) Yeah, it's so good, so good. So, Lauren, I don't really hear a lot of an accent, but it's got to be in there somewhere. And I'm wondering if that's something that sort of crops up when you go home. Oh, absolutely. It's really funny because whenever I left Louisiana and moved to Nashville, people could hear it a little bit, but they always thought I was foreign. So they'd say, where are you from? And I'd say, oh, I'm from Louisiana. And they're like, no, 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 but like, where are you originally from? And I'd say, no, I'm from Louisiana. And then they say, no, 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 like your birthplace. I know you're foreign. Like what country are you from? And then I was <laughs> like, no, I am born and raised in Louisiana. And the further along I got living in Nashville, I think it just, it kind of went away. But I did go take an acting audition out in LA and I'm talking just like I'm talking now. And she said, well, the first thing that you're going to have to do is get rid of that accent. And I said, girl, if you only knew how much this accent has been cleaned up from, you know, my grandfather, he grew up only speaking French. He couldn't speak English. 
until he went to elementary school. And then they taught him how to speak English. And culturally at the time, it was really shameful to speak French, to not integrate into an English society. And so the nuns would shame them and everything, right? So growing up, he never taught us how to speak Cajun French because that just wasn't appropriate in his childhood. And now I'm like, I want to do everything to gain as much knowledge as I can. Being surrounded by that culture growing up, it was always so beautiful to me. When I left, I realized how much more beautiful it was than I even realized. I was always so intrigued by the Cajun French because it's just so unique. It's unlike anything else. And I feel like those kind of cultures are really what make America so beautiful. So I was like, all right, Lord, teach me how to speak Cajun French. I was talking to someone on the plane on the way over the other day. And I said, I could tell by your skin because my dad has that Cajun skin. You're a Cajun boy. And he was like, oh, you kidding me? Yeah, of course I'm a Cajun boy. I said, do you speak Cajun French? And he said, yeah, fluent. Like I actually speak Cajun French just as much as I speak English. And I was like, see, that's what I want to keep going around in South Louisiana. Yeah, you got to hold on to that. It's really unique and and it's so strong in some places. I mean, even when they're speaking English, you got to really lean in to understand what they're saying. Yeah, my grandfather, he never had a very strong accent to me because I grew up hearing it. But whenever I started touring and people would come and listen to him talk, they're like, what do you say? And I was like, well, they're speaking English. And they're like, we don't know what he's saying. And it's funny because his siblings have a thicker accent. And it's kind of like that. Like they kind of talk with a thick tongue like that. Yeah. And so I could always understand it because it was around me, you know. But sometimes when I come home, I have to lean in a little bit closer than I normally do. So, you know, Lafayette is so rich in so many ways. And it's a really, you know, serious music town, too. I mean, there's all that zydeco and blues and all those funky rhythms. Were you exposed to a lot of that? Oh, yeah. My whole life. There is this place called Randall's. Have you ever been to Randall's in Lafayette? No. Another incredible Cajun restaurant. But they had this like kind of side porch that was screened in, like a true Acadian style scene. And it was on Sunday nights that you could go Cajun dance, Zodico dance. And I love it. My sister loves it. My aunt, she was the one who was always like, all right, girls, y'all going to have to learn how to do this. And my grandfather, he would put us on top of his feet when we were kids and dance around the kitchen with us and say, this is the waltz. This is the two-step. This is how it feels, you know. So whenever we went to Cajun dance in Zydeco, it kind of was second nature. I had two left feet until I turned 18, and then I finally started to understand rhythm. (laughs) But still to this day, I love it. And that's one of the things that I showed my friends. I was at this wedding and I invited a couple friends to come. It was a true Louisiana wedding in the backyard, that kind of thing. And I said, listen, I want y'all to observe the culture. Look at the dance floor. It's everyone from the infants that are a year old to the elderly folk that are in their 80s. And every person is dancing. Everyone knows these Cajun dances. Everyone knows the line dances. It's just a culture full of so much richness. And we take music to heart, and it's something that's beautiful because it's passed down from generation to generation with the washboards and the accordion. But then you also bring the step and the movement in as well. And all of my friends left saying, I can't believe this is what 
you grew up in. Like, I'm amazed that this is still alive because it feels like such a pastime, you know, people getting together to dance. And it's not like inappropriate dancing. It's like this beautiful old school where it's two people that are dancing together with a coordinated step. And so it's really beautiful. The amount of ages that are represented in the the cultural influence on the generations that have just been passed down from one generation to the next. And those are the things that I absolutely love to celebrate. So Lauren, you're known as a Christian artist, and I'm wondering where that foundation came from. Was it always there in your family? Was it something you did every weekend going to church? Or was it something that you sort of grew into later? It's an amalgamation of all the above. So I grew up in church. We would go to church on Sundays. And when I was 15, I got sick with an illness and I was placed on homebound for two years. And that was really when I started to learn who God was. Beyond just going to church on Sundays and the ritualistic aspect of that, that was when I really started to learn him in more of a relational sense. And I was sick and I would have all of these dreams or visions about touring and about singing in charts and tour buses and stages and people's faces. And I thought, I must be getting cabin fever. I must be losing it because I don't know what all this is. But God, if you're real, it was one of those God, if you're real moments. If you're showing this to me, let me know it. And there were moments where he would confirm that over and over and over again. And fast forward, I got into voice lessons, and then I started singing in our church choir and then did American Idol for a little while. Out of that season was when I went to LSU, got involved with a band, and then that band is how I ended up getting signed. So my faith and the aspects of my faith were really, I would say, there from childhood just because of the environment I grew up in. But I really came to my own revelation when I was a teenager. I mean, what a crazy experience to go through. I mean, it's almost like you had your own personal pandemic before that happened. Oh, yeah. It must have had a really profound effect on you. I mean, I have two kids in high school. It's such a formative time in life. You're making social connections with other kids for the first time. So to be deprived of that for two years, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's interesting. As an adult, I find myself still searching for the things that I missed or lost whenever that season was going on. And I have gone through counseling to help me figure out how to grieve that season, know that what was lost is lost, so that I can move forward with life without constantly holding on to the past. I'm not good at it, I will say. I definitely find myself in this rhythm, you know, for the first I don't know, seven years, 10 years of touring, I would just go 900 miles an hour. And a lot of it was because of all of these memories that I missed out on making in high school. And I didn't really draw the connection. I just thought, oh, I I just love life. I just love life. But what I noticed, I was getting more sick the more I would do. And I thought, why am I putting my body through this? What is actually going on underneath the surface? The more I started realizing my patterns, I realized it's because I'm trying to make up for lost time. And 
I feel like that season of being in isolation was also really difficult because I was the only one. The pandemic happened and everybody had to be in this version of a shutdown. So everybody kind of could relate to it together. But when I went through high school in those two years, I was the only one that was going through that. The rest of the world kept spinning. When the pandemic happened, I talked to a lot of high schoolers about taking that time and saying, how can I make this fruitful? How can I make this something beautiful? And I just believe that God allows us to walk through certain things that challenge us, but not to overwhelm us or overcome us, but to allow us to use that as a platform in which we launch from. Mm. I would read stories of other people who walked through circumstances and difficulties far beyond mine. And I would use those stories to encourage myself and say, I'm not going to be stuck here forever. One day I'll get out of this. Even though at the time I was super sick, I just knew other people have gone through worse scenarios and made it to the other side and they're thriving. What did they do? What was their mindset? How did they keep themselves focused and on top of it versus being completely overwhelmed? And I used those stories to keep myself focused just on the right track of eventually I'll one day get out of here. And when I do, what am I going to do about it? What is the message I'm going to give the world once that happens? It had to be so crazy for you to reemerge from that illness and to be reunited with your friends and your classmates and to kind of try and get back into the stream of the world. Oh, yeah. What was that process like for you? Was that kind of sudden or was it something that really happened more over a period of months? Oh, it was definitely over a period of months. I never was able to go back to high school. My sophomore year was when I was pulled from school. And then I never went back to the school that I had left. And I actually found this doctor who, because the only protocol at the time was a version of chemo. And I didn't, my dad was like, let's just see if there's some other options. And he was in pharmaceuticals. So it wasn't anything against healthcare as much as it was just the side effects were pretty intense. And so um, we found a naturopathic doctor that had some remedies that helped over the course of about a month. I found myself like, wow, I have more energy than I've had before. It still wasn't enough to go back to school to the rigor that I was prior, but I ended up joining a co-op and I was able to do a homeschooling that I would go to school once a week and it wasn't too hard on my body. And I was able to still have some sort of a social environment. And that was my junior year that I did that. And then my senior year, I went to a charter school for a couple of months and then ended up graduating. But you only had to go to school 90% of the month for three hours a day. So I could miss basically a day a week and only have to go to school for three hours a day. So That wasn't too intense on my body. And then I was able to finally kind of reemerge after that. But it definitely took time. And I never kind of got the high school experience that you always dreamed of. I didn't get to graduate with my friends and things like that. Well, it wasn't such a dream for everybody. So Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The beauty is I did get to go. My friends were so dear and kind to me. And I did get to go to some high school dances. So that was good. 
After the break, I'll talk more with Lauren Daigle about her love for LSU, how the COVID-19 pandemic shaped her new album, and how her music reflects her faith. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Louisiana's own Lauren Daigle. So you end up at LSU, and I heard you say that your grandparents worked at LSU for a long time. Talk to me about that school and what it means to you. Oh, all the pride in the world to be an LSU Tiger. Also, This is kind of a side note. So last night we played in Tuscaloosa, which we all know Alabama's in Tuscaloosa, but I had to throw a little tiger there. So at the end of the show, I said, go Tigers really loud. And then I ran off stage. (laughs) You know, I'm so proud of our LSU women's basketball team. Absolutely. Unprecedented. The fact that they're the first team to make it to the championship and then also to win. And the highest scoring game of any team in the championship, that was pretty beautiful to see them accomplish so much. So definitely a massive Tiger fan. Grew up going to those games. I wanted to be a gymnast at one point when I was a kid, so we'd go to the LSU gymnastics meets. And then I grew up going to the football games regularly because my family worked there. We were able to have season tickets. So I grew up on LSU's campus. My dad and mother were married on LSU's campus. And my dad was also born and raised. They lived on LSU's campus in the dorms. So yeah, there's a lot of heritage, a lot of history in the school. And I treasure that school so much. It's where I met the band that I ended up going to meet the record label with. And I never graduated from LSU because I got signed and then moved to Nashville. But those two years that I was at LSU were some of the richest years of my life. I mean, I loved it so much. I love the school. I love the culture. I love how much we celebrate everything. (laughs) It's just, it's a lot of fun. One time, this just kind of shows the nature of LSU and our fandom. We went to watch a game, LSU football game, and I was going back to Lafayette after the game with my manager. This is after I was doing music and everything. I wasn't going to the school any longer. So to get from Baton Rouge to Lafayette, you take the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge, which is like 
a 19-mile-long bridge. And we're on this bridge, and a wreck happens, which, you know, was unfortunate. But if you live in Louisiana, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning because those games last late by the time you get out of the stadium and everything. And there was a charter bus in front of us that opened their doors, blasted the music. Everybody gets out of their cars and starts doing line dances on the Atchafalaya <laughs> Basin Bridge while we're waiting for like two hours. <laughs> People pull out barbecue pits and start cooking on the side. My point is, as a culture, we know how to celebrate. We know how to have a good time. We know how to turn things that can seem dim and gray into sunny rainbow skies. It's just the way that we were raised. And so a lot of that goes into the LSU culture as well. Always an excuse for a party, even when you break down in the middle (laughs) of a bridge at one o'clock in the morning. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's great. So Lauren, you go to LSU and you were a child and family studies major. Correct. Yes. And you've raised a lot of money for nonprofits that help children. How has that interest sort of stayed with you as you've pursued your musical career? Well, my family is a family that has always seen kids and have done something about it. My grandmother started a school for dyslexic children. She was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My great aunts were teachers. So I come from an environment where children were kind of the focus of their life. My mom was an early childhood development major at LSU. And so I grew up just kind of with this natural compassion for kids because of my upbringing. But I always found it interesting. I went to Singapore prison. And while I was there, I asked some of the inmates their stories. And the more I found out, the more I realized this system is set up in a certain way that can really help in a way that can hurt. And so I said, what can I do to be on the helping side to where more kids aren't facing the possibility of being imprisoned at some point in their life? And all across the board, they said, start with the youth, get into the schools and see what you can do. So we partnered with a lot of programs that go into these schools and that help put music instruments into their hands instead of, you know, getting involved in gangs, kids that would be susceptible to those kind of environments. And I've seen amazing things with my own two eyes. I've gone to these programs myself and have sat in front of these kids and watched them play. And it's absolutely beautiful. Just giving kids an opportunity to that might not be academically prepared once it's time to graduate. You know, what is another skill set that we can give them? Back in the day, they used to have home ec and workshop and things like that. And my school didn't have that. We didn't have a music program. We didn't have really anything. I didn't grow up in a school that had a lot of those resources. So it was genuinely by the grace of God that I got into music the way I did. But I think about kids that when you give them an instrument, how far it can take them. And for me, this instrument, my voice, has taken me all over the world. If you put an instrument in a child's hand that might not be someone who's academically driven, the places that it can take these kids is far and wide. And one of the programs that we are a part of helping out financially, they send a kid to Juilliard every single year. Juilliard has partnered with them or Berkeley has partnered with them to give a scholarship every year to their program. So it's amazing to see some of the places that these kids can come from, but also the places that they can go with just an instrument. Mm. 
Well, speaking of the power of music, I want to talk about some of your music, especially a song that you came out with not long ago called Thank God I Do, which is such a powerful song. And you talk about darkness and fear falling off the edge. And I'm wondering if some of that is a reference to some tough times that you've been through personally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As we all probably experienced in COVID, just a massive shift in reality and perspective. That happened for me. We were touring. We were on top of the world. We just finished the Australian leg of the world tour. We were starting the United States, North American portion of the world tour. And it was kind of that feeling of just everything is alive and well, and I can't wait to do these shows. The tour is going amazing. The set is incredible. All of the things you work really hard for were just right in place. And we were in Grand Rapids, and they came to us and said, hey, we have to shut the tour down for the next six weeks. We have to turn the buses around and go back to Nashville and it was because of everything that was going on with COVID. And I remember thinking, okay, this is unfortunate, but we were going so hard that I understood and also needed a break. So I was like, okay, we can use a little break. But little did I know what was all about to unfold. And I think going from that much of a high to that level of isolation was such whiplash. I've been traveling the world for the past five years at that point, nonstop, like just going, going, going. And then to have to com go to complete isolation and complete stillness. Um, and then also with the animosity that was happening in the world at the time, that was really hard for, for me to understand. Some of those things that were completely out of my control, it definitely started to mess with me. And there was a period where I started to realize how much of this life, not just regarding health and government and things like that, politics, but just how much of this actual life here on earth is completely out of my control. It's out of all of our control. And the blink of an eye, something can happen and everything change. And I think coming to terms with that revelation, it wasn't one that I worked through easily. I had friends that they weren't even phased. They were just like, oh, it's just a time of life and it is what it is. And I know where my help comes from. And for me, that wasn't the case. I developed a lot of anxiety, developed panic attacks, things that I'd never, I'm such a free spirit. I'm the girl who loves skydiving, cliff jumping, all of that stuff. And all of a sudden I found myself completely paralyzed in my house and just frozen with fear. And in that time, I had very specific people that I feel like God brought into my life to remind me of who I was and to remind me of who he was and the the source of strength that I could find leaning on him. And I feel like some of those moments were the most bottom of the pit, if you will, for the season that I was in. Um, and that type of darkness was very gripping. And so from that place is where I wrote, thank God I do.
Well, it's a very inspiring song, and I think people can take a lot of things from it, depending on where they are in life, you know, depending on what they're going through, they can kind of hear what they need to in that song. Absolutely. It's just beautifully done. Thank you. There's another great song on this album called Waiting. It's a big song, and it sounds like something meant for a choir or a lot of people singing together. Tell me a little bit about that one and the message behind it. Oh, I love this song. Okay, so it has somewhat of a twofold meaning. People always ask me about love life situations, and I keep my personal life pretty private just because I I like there to be a separation, you know? But people ask me for advice all the time with love life and things like that. We get into the writing room, and I said, y'all, I just, I want to write a song about waiting and not just waiting for love, but like celebrating the idea of waiting. Everything is so instant now. Our culture is just like instant gratification. I can warm food up in a microwave that's ready in five minutes. I can swipe and click like and order food online and all of a sudden it's at my door. I don't know why food is coming up to my mind so much, but <laughs> you know, everything is so instant. And I think we need to write a song that actually celebrates the beauty of waiting. Because when you wait for something, that's when your passion for it actually gets to build and grow. That's when the thing that you're waiting for becomes more and more precious to you because you know the value of taking time. Time becomes something really, really precious in the process of waiting. And I just want to write a song about that. So it becomes a song that is somewhat geared toward waiting for a loved one, waiting for the chance to feel loved, waiting for the chance to have that type of soul interaction with someone. That's one part of the equation. But I feel like waiting in of itself is just a beautiful gift that sometimes we in our instant culture try to blaze past, but it's actually beautiful. It cultivates perseverance. It cultivates integrity. Waiting is just something that's really beautiful. Part two, it lends itself to the bridge of the song, which is waiting on on a love like the sky waits for the sun. I'm the one who'll be waiting for you. And in my Christian faith, we believe that God will one day come again, that Jesus will come again. And so that portion of the bridge is a reflection of the day that he'll be coming back again. You've got this beautiful sort of raspy, soulful voice, and it kind of reminds me of, I don't know, Adele or Macy Gray. Oh, yeah. Is that something that runs in your family? Do all the Daigles sound like you? <laughs> no, we literally laugh about this. My dad, whenever we were kids, he would just be talking to us like, okay, come on, you got to do this, you got to do that. And we'd say, dad, why are you screaming at us? And he'd say, screaming at y'all? What are you talking about? I'm not screaming at you, girls. I'm just talking to you. And it's because his voice was just so big. He's got a big old barrel chest. And so 
he can project incredibly well. And I think that is where I get some of it from, being able to do that soul kind of belting, if you will. But the rasp, I don't know where that comes from. I, I still haven't figured it out. In my immediate family, there wasn't a lot of singers or a lot of musicians. But the further along into my career I went, the more my grandparents started talking to me about my ancestors. Like, oh, your great-great-uncle was on the radio. Or, oh, your cousin used to be in such-and-such band that would write these songs. And I started learning a little bit more that it was in my DNA, even though it wasn't necessarily in my immediate family. (laughs) It does run in the family. (laughs) Well, Lauren, I just have one more question for you. All right. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Oh, that is a great question. The first thing I think of in being Southern is this one word that we will all know very well, hospitality. And I told someone the other day, I said, here's the deal. We can get a bad rap in certain ways for being slow or saying, bless your heart, things like that, whatever. Being the simple folk. But I think our hospitality in the way that Being from Louisiana, we grew up, it wasn't like, oh, here, I'm just going to slap some food on the table. There was passion poured into every meal. There was love poured into every meal. And my dad used to say, I genuinely believe we will change the world one meal together at the table at a time. He was so passionate about bringing food to people. And when Katrina hit, we ended up going to kind of the more dodgy areas, if you will, And we would cook gumbo and just bring it to the communities. And it wasn't like to do this charitable act. It was genuinely just because people needed food. This was kind of a dire situation. Obviously, they have nothing. How can we get food to people? And I share that story to share the hospitality isn't just for the foreigner, the northerner, the whatever that comes in and, oh, we want to make ourselves look good. The hospitality is from heart to heart, soul to soul. It's the genuine love of people that makes, I think, the South just genuinely so special. You never meet a stranger. You get to love people as your own. It's okay to go to the neighbor and ask for butter when you're making cookies, you know? And I think there's just something really pure about that that I hope we never see lost. If I can encourage people in the South to say, keep that alive, keep that alive, because I've traveled around the world and it is the thing that makes me want to come home. I get so excited walking on the streets and just talking to people as if they've been at my house my whole life. You know, another thing I found really interesting is when I moved away from Louisiana, people would always say this, oh, it was so good meeting you. Like, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Actually, they don't say cuppa. That's something I learned that we say in the South. They say, let's go grab a coffee at the local coffee shop. Well, in Louisiana, if you meet someone and they become your friend, or if you run into somebody and you have a great conversation, you say, oh my gosh, it was so good to meet you. I'm going to invite you over for dinner one night. Come over to the house. You can sit. I'll cook for you. We'll have a good old conversation. And that is something that I treasure so deeply about being from the South, about being Southern, is the hospitality and the love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we do a really good job of that. Yeah, we do, don't we? We do. (laughs) I love it. Well, Lauren Daigle, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. This has been lovely.
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lauren Daigle. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, ideally a nice one, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with one of the best chefs in the South, especially when it comes to vegetables, Stephen Satterfield. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.